0: You're listening to the Pandemic Podcast. We equip you to live the most real life possible in the face of today's crises. My name is Matt Vodker and I'm joined with my one good friend, Mark is away. Dr. Stephen Kissler is an epidemiologist at the Harvard School of Public Health. Mark is away at the hospital doing his stuff, whatever he does. So, Stephen, hey. how's it going? Good to see you. It's
1: good to see you too. How are you?
0: Good. It's uh, it's Monday. It's our new rotation. It's exciting. I'm starting to stay fresh. Just... Uh, talking about COVID stuff. So let's get going right away. We have a lot to talk about. Like usual reviews, please leave them hugely helpful. Here's one. I'll put it in synopsis. It was a critical, is a critique of us. So I want to throw it to you guys just to help. Uh, this is from Swordfish. Just talking about how he loves our content and loves the wisdom of Mark and Stephen. in that sometimes we can go a little bit long about personal life stuff. So. He mentioned it was seven minutes the last episode and wants to get straight into the good tidbits of information that they have to offer. So if that's a concern, I know some people give us a lot of feedback, how they love incorporating our personal life and what's going on in our life. So we've been doing that a little bit more. But if you would like us to reel it in a little bit more, be tighter to get straight into the good stuff of the questions with Mark and Stephen, email me, matt at livingthereal.com. We want feedback. After all, we're here to serve. We're just trying to give information we're not trying to just talk about our days and our kids. We could do another podcast for that. So, Or the hopeful kids of Stephen and his future, his future life and all that kind of stuff. So please let us know. But nonetheless, leave reviews. Hugely helpful. If you want to leave a donation, we now have $450 left to pay off. We're getting close. You can just do a one-time gift. PayPal, Venmo, all in the show notes. If you want to contribute as little as $5 a month, that's at patreon.com slash pandemicpodcasts. And last, I uh, dropped another episode of Living the Real. It's about the one habit that can change your life as little as 10 minutes a day. It's about journaling. And I give my 3M journal template away for free so you can have that. It's a great episode. Check it out at livingthereal.com. Okay, let's get in. So the first thing, and Stephen, I want to talk to you about this. So it was about three weeks ago. I was having a tough time at, at, at the end Boulder. And we're trying to figure out. we were just being exposed already. Was in the first week of COVID. I had so many students asking, "What should I do? What should I do?" So of course, what do I do? I pick up my my, my phone and text my fellow epidemiologist friend to talk about what should we do. And you gave us a really good, very practical two step process. And I want to throw it your way, Stephen, to just tell everybody else because it's been helping us a lot. When it comes to someone being exposed, we kind of get it. You can repeat what what we should do, but. Here's the difficulty: when you're exposed to someone who's been exposed, what do you do? What was your two-step process you share with me? That you could share with other people.
1: Yeah. So I, I want to preface this with the fact that, like, you know, we're this is this is the opinion of an epidemiologist, and this is not necessarily <laughs> something that we've yeah. done I any mean, sort of like modeling or trials or anything around yeah. it's, it. The, I think that choosing how to behave right now is, is, is so tricky. I've had so many conversations with people like. Even, even me, as somebody who's been studying this as my full-time job since January, like, I still sometimes just don't know how to act. And so like, like whether it's safe to do this thing or that thing or whether I should, whatever. So so this is basically the framework that, I, that I'm thinking about in terms of exposure. Um, definitely up for
0: debate, and, and, but,
1: but this, is, this is sort of the way that I'm thinking about it. So first off, if, if you know for sure that you've been exposed to someone with COVID, and that it could have been in that period when they were infectious. So anywhere from a couple of days before they tested positive or felt symptoms, anywhere to a week or so after, you should self isolate if that's at all possible. Because you know, if a direct exposure is is a direct exposure, and it's you, know, you should then self isolate until you get yourself tested, and then you know, and then if the test comes back negative, then you can consider sort of going about your life a little bit more a little bit more openly. But then you asked about the exposures to the exposures, you know, what if you have the yeah. secondary exposures where you you know that you've had close contact with someone who's had close contact with someone who's tested positive. And I think in that scenario, you know, it, it's probably not necessary for you to go out and get tested immediately. Um, hopefully we'll we'll reach a point where we have you know all the tests available that we need and they can turn back quickly. You know, if you're in a community where testing is really straightforward, by all means, go for it, you know, go get a test. But I think the most important thing for those people is to make sure that you're restricting your contacts, maybe not self-isolating totally. But the thing that we're trying to avoid is these major super spreading events that are sort of ballooning from one thing mm-hmm. to the next. And the best way to do that is to just make sure that you're not interacting with more than a couple of unique individuals over any you know, single period of time. I've been doing this since the beginning of the pandemic. I, I've, I've tried to make sure that I'm not seeding any super spreading events ever because I, I don't, I've always sort of been treating myself as if I could be infectious. So I've been limiting the number of people who I've seen within any two-week period to five to 10 at the absolute max. And so I think for people who are these secondary exposures, that's something that makes an awful lot of sense to do, to make sure you're not spreading to lots of other people. And then if any of the people who you've been in direct contact with then become positive, then you just sort of shift up that pipeline. Now you've had a direct exposure, you should self-isolate until you find out yourself. But but that's the main thing, is making sure that if you're in the contact of a contact, just make sure you're not spreading it to large numbers of other people, and just be mindful.
0: Yeah, I could totally see this going off the charts on CNN. The you know epidemiologist throws rager, and then you know hundred people infected with COVID wouldn't really go well with your particular career. Yes, yeah, so. it's not
1: great for the PR.
0: Um, <laughs> no, good choice by staying close at home. Well, good. Thank you for sharing that. It was important to me, and wanted to be able to share it with others as well. Okay, all right. So let's the other thing. I just wanted to put in here the CDC was really helpful they offered uh, an article or publication on how to deal with grief and loss so not much to talk about here but I want to put it into your virtual hands I'll put in the show notes it was a good good little uh, list of resources that everyone is suffering some sense of grief it's uh, there was my sister just sent an awesome little from something uh, what's it called some good news right that that whole great great platform check it out it's very inspiring about this poster like on some lawn it had Oh, I forgot what it was, but it basically said, look, we're all going through a hard time. It's okay. Basically, you know, just treat yourself. Okay. So it was an awesome, inspiring comment, but we're all going through a hard time. We all need resources. to so check it out. Another thing before we do another couple, a couple deep dives here is mask research. We're not going to talk about this again. We've talked about this before, but thanks to Stephen and Mark, we kind of got a short list. Of some good articles and some tests that have been done on masks, because I'm dealing with people who are anti-mask. I'm sure some of our listeners are. You're like, how do I address this in a sensitive, charitable way? Well, in the end, we gotta follow science. That's our best means. And when you're just trying to pit one media outlet against another, it becomes difficult because then you kind of get in this idea that I'm CNN, I'm 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 Atlantic, and versus let's just go behind that. Let's look at the best science possible and make the best decision possible. So check the show notes, some really good material there that you can read, digest, send to your friends, and just have a good discussion about the effectivity of masks. Okay, now I want to go back to Stephen. There's a couple things here. I feel, Stephen, there's this kind of like the slippery slope starting to happen. So these articles are related. First, more of an innocuous one. I just want to get your perspective on this that the CDC changed their guidelines when it comes to getting tests. So I think it was that if you're exposed to someone, even if you're asymptomatic, to get tested. Now they change their guidelines to if you're exposed to someone that had COVID, and if you're showing no signs, you don't need to get tested. I would love, what, what are your in, what are you thinking about this? And what was the change? I mean, in my mind, I'm thinking, of course, I'm not trying to be pessimistic. I'm just like, oh, you know, we're having a tough time to with the tests. Mm-hmm. So let's just kind of knock that out and just focus on the people who need it. And that's the reason, not necessarily science. What do you, what do you are you concerned about this at all?
1: Yeah, I I am, frankly, and, and I think that many of my colleagues are too. You know, it's the the it's all of the evidence that we have suggests that asymptomatic and especially pre-symptomatic spread is really a main driver of the transmission of the COVID outbreaks. And so if if you're not testing those people, you're not going to find them. And and so I think that the guidelines are are confusing from a public health standpoint. So I'm not really sure what what the what the motivation was for setting these up. You know, I know that in terms of, of testing shortages, the the issue that we're having right now is is not so much that we don't have enough tests in the country as a whole, but it's the distribution of those tests. I mean, this is the age old problem of distribution of goods of, of everything. You know, like this is this is this is the fundamental problem of our society, yeah, right? Sure. And it's it's showing up in testing as well, where it's you know. Here, here in Massachusetts, we have tons of tests and lots of labs that are able to run those tests, but then a lot of places that are currently seeing bigger outbreaks just don't have those and have to ship their tests to places like Massachusetts and then get them shipped back. Sure. So, yeah, so that said, you know, there, there continue to be issues with testing and especially the distribution of tests that really need to be addressed. But I don't, I don't see why a guideline like this will actually help yeah. with that. So, so frankly, I'm I'm a little confused by it, and yeah. and I don't think that it is that it aligns with with public health wisdom. So.
0: Yeah, and this is not the first time I think we've been confused by something the CDC or WHO has said, which makes it all the more difficult because we're trying to advance a uniform cause to bring COVID down. And then this, I think, all, all it does is kind of, in my in my opinion, and I'm sure I'm going to see in the next couple of days, it just helps the suspicion. Uh, and and that it's it's unneeded right now. Okay, so we have that. The next thing here is is the the next part of the slippery slope, but I think is more difficult. Is just like last week we talked about the what was it the not the bone not the uh, oh plasma right? Yep. How that was fast paced and we didn't quite sure what that really meant. But now the FDA once again is fast pacing remdesivir to treat COVID nineteen. So kind of maybe I'm not sure what this really means. Stepping over some of the scientific procedures. And making it more widely uh, accessible. Is this any concern to you, or is REM disavere safe to do this? I'm just starting to have some little bells go off in my mind right about now. Like again, it could be because I'm thinking of Russia, and so I'm, it's an unfair comparison. And I'm, I'm interpreting things like this. Like in my mind, America was this way. We we have our procedures, and we do we do this for the safety of everyone. And now I feel like it's being chipped away. And I'll, I'll you know I'm trying to put this with the other one too because you just didn't even weren't even aware of this, but they're so related. Justice supporting as all as well, FDA commissioner says he's willing to fast track coronavirus vaccine past phase three. So we have plasma from severe, and now an openness to fast pace. Are you concerned about this? Like, what is going on? Yeah.
1: So with the with a convalescent serum question, that it was it was kind of mixed. So like a lot of my colleagues were very, were absolutely concerned about it for sure because it did seem like it could have been in response to pressure being put on basically by. Federal government to try to basically just come up with something, and so it, it is very strange. I mean, like Mark said, like they've been using this since the beginning of the outbreak, and so why, like, why now? Why, why the emergency approval granted now? And, and it could just be because you know it seems like the the weight of evidence was suggesting that maybe it's helpful. I admittedly haven't dived into that particular research. I, I wish Mark were around because I think he'd be able to speak a lot more clearly to to these things. But certainly, you know, with with Remdesivir. Now it's it's coming out you know very quickly after that as well and again I think yeah people have been using remdesivir in hospitals very frequently and I suppose mm-hmm. the the emerg- lifting or allowing the emergency authorization of it allows you to use it outside of the context of trials again unclear if that will have any effect on the actual treatment yeah. of patients in any way mm-hmm. and so it, it seems like you know again the two the two options are either that you know, the weight of evidence is suggesting you know, it's probably not that harmful might have mm-hmm. a benefit for some people. So we'll just authorize it again, coming on heels of the plasma and sort of some of the issues with the vaccination. Yeah. yeah it's just, sure. it's just not really clear what's, what's yeah. happening and what the motivations there are. So, but the thing, I think the, the issue with the vaccine is, is, is something that that's where I think I, I shift towards a little bit more of concern. Whereas before I think I was walking more of a middle path where it was like, well, you know, like sometimes things happen together and like, I know that we're all sort of in this really charged yeah. political atmosphere and like, you know, people are going to draw meaning from things where it doesn't necessarily exist and that sort of thing. But we've talked so much about trials and about the importance of trials. Yeah. And I know that, that, that on previous episodes, we've talked a little bit about you know, FDA approval for the tests. And, yeah. and we've talked about, you know, like, why can't they just approve these? And 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 the issue there is not so much that with the tests. It isn't that we want to circumvent FDA approval. It's that we want them to establish a different Route of approval for things that are used for surveillance yeah. rather than clinical route medicine. Yeah. So really, we want to use the structures that we have available and approve them, and and not circumvent them. Mm-hmm. But but yeah. the issue with with sort of this openness of, of what it sounds like, basically shortcutting phase three trials, is that it actually is circumventing some of these these institutions and these procedures that we have in place that are really very important. As we were talking before the show, you know, you brought up the, that that the FDA director was saying that. That he would be open to it only if it was what was it like supported by science?
0: Or? Yeah, he was he was very he was very kind of very specific to say that this is not political, right. that this is will be only grounded in science. Which I want to like that when we were talking about, I was confused. I'm like, how can this be grounded in science? In my mind, I'm searching for a reason because you have this whole process for a vaccine, and you're going to say I'm going to circumvent that in the name of science. So either a you're contradicting yourself, or there is a higher level of principles. That's governing the FDA. What I'm uh, unaware of that, and maybe you have the inside track to this, Stephen, and what the, those guiding principles are that can fast pace these. But if that's the case, I want to see that. Otherwise, I'm suspicious.
1: Right, totally. And I think the the it was it was precisely that statement that really gives me pause and and some amount of alarm because, frankly, science is political. You know, we do our best mm. to be objective, but we're the thing, the questions that we ask and the things that we decide are important are things that are based on value judgments that exist outside of the realm of science. And the question of vaccines and, and when you approve a vaccine and how you approve it is absolutely a question that that is informed by science, but it's it's not fundamentally a scientific question, right? It has to do with our level of risk that we're willing to accept it has to do with with this complex weighing of risks and benefits and of future risks weighed with future sort of less known benefits and vice versa it's a very complex thing and those are the sorts of questions that science can't answer right mm-hmm. and so part of the you know you asked about like what what are these other principles that are that are, yeah. are guiding this and i think that there's there's a really interesting thing going on here because and and this is getting into sort of the in some senses the, the philosophy of institutions and of culture as a whole because I think that some of those principles you know, historians and political philosophers you know we do our best to articulate what those principles are but to some extent the reason society as a culture is what it is, is because those things are to some extent unarticulable or difficult to articulate, and really their best form is as they are embodied in our institutions. So part of the reason we have this three-phase trial is because it's, it's actually expressing, it's instantiating these, these higher principles and their principles of a trade-off between safety and, and risk and a certain openness to risk. And we can try to articulate what exactly those things are. But the fact is that the clearest expression of those things is precisely this three phase set mm. of trials. And yeah. and like that is that is how we express our yeah. our willingness and openness to risk. And I think that there is there is a huge danger in trying to circumvent that, because what that's essentially doing is looking at this thing that we've, we've developed over time through through this entire history of things that have really gone wrong and things that have really gone right. And we've been adjusting this through this sort of collective knowledge and experience over time. And what we have is something that, that that's informed by all of this, this stuff that's, that's really been built off of the mistakes that we've made in the past and the successes that we've achieved. And if we somehow then come in at this point and say, like, well, no, we'll just trust science, you know, and and circumvent all of these things, all of these values and all of this, this sort of thing that's been developed, like... I think that's very dangerous because what that's doing is it, it it, it does two things. First of all, it, you know, I think circumventing it it already is, 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 is dangerous because it you know, it it just ignores a lot of that wisdom for the sake of, of what, for the, I mean, for the sake of hopefully, I mean, I think that there's probably a kernel of goodwill behind this. You know, you really want to save lives for sure. And And I really sympathize with that. You know, I want a vaccine too, and I want one that works, but that's the thing is I want one that works and I want to make sure that it works. And I want one that I can have confidence in because the second problem here is that if we do end up with one that doesn't work well that erodes trust in science because it was remember it was precisely science that this FDA director was saying is the thing that guided us and if it goes wrong people have very good reason to not trust science right because you can draw a direct link suppose you know between between things going wrong and the science and so it's like well if Mm. if that went yeah and, and that's precisely what we don't need right now we don't need mistrust in science we don't need mistrust in vaccines What we need is science that works and vaccines that work and both of those things to serve culture and to serve, you know, the and for politics to serve culture and and to serve these sort of these greater these greater unarticulable principles that are that are embodied. And so I think that's why that that's my concern here and why I think that it's it's really important to make sure that we're dotting our I's and crossing our T's, especially with respect to the next.
0: That's great. Like okay, so this a couple of things I want to unpack. I think you just nailed it. You gave me chills for a second when, it, when you talked about how we're, I think by doing this or even being suggesting this, we're kind of, I mean, I'm not a scientist, but the science community is being cut off at the knees. We're already in a place where I feel like what you just said, science is already being looked at suspiciously. And it's almost as if we're being open to the possibility to repeating the whole mask like problem, right? It's, it's, you know, right away, no big, you know, don't wear a mask, no big deal. There is there's not a uniform consensus. And then of course now wear masks, and so now because there wasn't a uniform consensus, now there's suspicion about masks and other things as well. And, it, and it's now it's gone out of hand. And if we do this and, and say, okay, we're, we're just gonna go ahead and fast-track this, what is this going to do to chip away exactly? I mean, let's skip ahead to we're gonna talk about a little bit about the vaccine, and there's some good articles about this. And you and I were talking about how we already have a a, a little bit of rightful you know, suspicion, not suspicion, but caution with, with the vaccine. And so the next thing I want to talk about and related, to this completely, that we're talking about fast pacing the vaccine. I'm hearing from a handful of people saying we're not, I mean, this is before this happened. Okay. So now, now it's even more. So weeks ago before the FDA suggested this, it was already about, Hey, they're fast. They're, they're rushing the vaccine. It's at, it's at record pace. Well, so then my, my conclusion is they're cutting corners. So I'm not going to take it because they're cutting corners. So initially, before I saw this article this morning, I want to talk to you about how that's not the case, that, that it's, maybe it's more complicated than that, that it's the whole world working together in collaboration. It's that we have new methods, we have new technologies that's able for us to still do, our pro- do the scientific process as it always is and was, right? But at a, at a, at a, at a rate that actually is bringing it closer. But now with this, it's just, now it's muddy in the waters and I'm even more concerned about whether I should take the vaccine. So I know it's a complicated question. It was meant to be simple. Just, hey, show the audience that this is actually okay. That, but now with this one, I'm like, okay, I don't know. Maybe it is a little shady. So what, yeah. where, where, where do you land on this?
1: Right. So I think that you know, it, the, the choice of vocabulary here is so interesting. And I think that, you know again, historians are going to have such... Uh, a, a huge source of, of interesting things to look at from this time. So, right, the question of like is the vaccine rushed, you know, like rush itself suggests a certain amount of uh throwing caution to the wind, right? Mm-hmm. And I would say, you know, the the science that has been happening around developing these vaccines has has been happening at an unprecedented rate, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um people are but that's that's also built upon a lot of vaccine technology that has been developed over the last decade or so, where there are these new platforms, these new routes of delivery for vaccines that have have really come about, but haven't really, haven't really gained prominence just because there hasn't really been a reason to develop them. You know, we have other reasons to, we have other ways of administering vaccines that have worked for a long period of time, but now sort of all of these different types of technology were sort of poised and ready for, for, you know, this urgent need to develop a new vaccine against a new pathogen. So that's part of why this has been happening so quickly. Mm-hmm. is because we really were sort of at this cusp of, I think, a revolution in vaccine technologies. Yeah. And so many different companies and academic institutions have been sort of using these new platforms to develop vaccines very rapidly. And so on the one hand, I mean, it rushed, yes. I mean, yeah, it's it's tricky because, again, that word has so many connotations of yeah. what's going on, you know, like like people are doing very careful and rapid science around this to try to make sure that they're developing vaccines that are safe and effective. And, and that's precisely why I think we need the regulatory uh, process to yeah. work as it works as well, Absolutely. too, because the the science is going quickly. And we need to make sure, you know, in some senses, the regulatory process is a check and balance on that speed of science, because, you know, we, we need to make sure that it's, that it's safe and effective. And so so I think that doing things quickly and efficiently is not a problem, as as long as we're doing. You know, there, there's this great. Uh, I think it's like a Mumford and Sons lyric that that talk, it's, it has to do with like the difference between urgency and haste. It's talking about like I will I will love with urgency, but not with haste. And I think that that's important, right? We, we're in a time where urgency is of the utmost importance, but haste and the carelessness that it implies is is something that we cannot afford. Right. So vaccine technology has been proceeding hugely quickly really exciting and i think that it's actually opening the doors for a lot of other types of vaccines as well that might not have been developed because these other technologies have you know so like i think that this will actually be a really big benefit for public health over time again if it's done responsibly and but you know like you said i think that there's still you know there's still absolutely i think like i i absolutely trust the vaccines that we have and I'm still very confident and have a lot of faith that the vaccine that we'll eventually get for COVID will also, you know, be safe and effective. And I do still trust our institutions to a very large degree. And so, so I think that that's, you know, that's, that's worth mentioning. And, and I think that it's, you brought up the question with masks as well earlier. I think it's just really important here to, to try to avoid some of the tribalism that comes with this as well. And to recognize that like, there are people who have legitimate concerns about mask wearing and, and there are people who have very legitimate concerns about vaccines as well. Mm-hmm. You know? And 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 I think we need to speak to that and and grapple with that and try to understand that and take those concerns on for ourselves. Because again, like you said, there's 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 all sorts of reasons to be to be cautious as well and and things that 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 can be causes for concern. I think I think that's important. You know, it's it's we we reach a greater consensus by listening to that and through that dialogue mm-hmm. and and not just sort of you know saying like well you need to wear your mask because the science says you need to and you need to get a vaccine because the science says you need to because the science will tell you you know like like science science is a dialogue too and mm-hmm. it's 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 just incredibly tricky so I, yeah. I think that this is something that we may have to revisit as we move forward too because yeah. I it's a
0: really complex process you know the the the
1: history of Certainly, vaccines, but also vaccine hesitancy and vaccine refusal has its own really interesting history and its own sort of cultural embeddedness, and and there are all sorts of reasons for it, and all sorts of reasons that people people elevate. Some of which are are you know, not not actually reflected in, in the science, but some of which reflect I think actual concerns and just different ways that people are weighing their own risks and benefits. And so I think that what's necessary is you know remembering that a COVID vaccine as with masks, as with so many of our public health interventions is ideally meant to protect you, but also hopefully, you know, depending on on how the vaccine works to protect other people as well. And that's of utmost importance. And yeah, so I think that this is something that we'll have to continue talking about a lot. So again, I have a lot of trust in it. I have a lot of trust in the process. I have a lot of trust in vaccines in general. And I think that we need to continue to engage the people who don't lovingly and mindfully because they're bringing something important to the table too.
0: No, that's great. They, so a couple of things, I want to just reiterate what Steven said oh, maybe like a month ago that hit me hard. Cause yeah, I'm worried. Like, you know, the whole phrase, like this is time trusted. It's a cliche phrase that you use. Like, so with this is it, the, the time is a very shorter span so that that doesn't give me as much confidence. Now I do fully aware that like time, isn't the exclusive variable to success. Like clearly technology, we've seen this and it's so many different areas of, of our life that we're technology expedites in a good way and great bringing about just as much quality in a fraction of the time so it's a different kind of metric that we have to use today than just time trusted and but one thing you did say you just mentioned again and reiterated that with older people typically the vaccine doesn't work as effectively as younger people because it requires immune response i learned this from Stephen. so of course that encouraged me all the more that also it has me internally conflicted of like I want to do my due diligence to get the vaccine. Yes. In general, to help those who don't, it doesn't quite affect as as well, but specifically my own mother-in-law, like we want to see her. And so there's a lot of pressure in our own family to like take it right away. But I think like most of the people, the day I take this, and especially if it's right away, am I going to be nervous? Yeah, i will be nervous just because it's just a short period of time. And I don't know you know, like my, my wife once asked, like, what's the long-term consequences? Like, we have no idea because a long-term requires it to be around for a while. And that's the scary part. Like you're part of that long-term, you know, I can't answer that without just saying it hasn't been there for that long. Right. So thank you for sharing that. Going back to something you just said earlier, and this goes back to the other thing, this rapid antigen testing for $1 that still hasn't been approved by the FDA. You mentioned this, and I loved this. It came from an article I put in the show notes that the the, the thing is that there is a push to make a distinction. So for those of you who don't know what this is, it's just basically a saliva test at-home kit. You can, within 15 minutes, know whether you are negative or positive for COVID, super cheap, as little as $1 a day, could be a game changer to to the U.S. for sure. And, and the problem is that it is currently being seen as a medical diagnostic tool, which is then under a particular camp of principles we just talked about. And so this is not like, I think it's the perfect example you're just saying, Stephen. It's not that we're asking or the community is asking to redefine principles, but shift it to a different category of principles. So rather than, instead of the umbrella of medical diagnostics, to shift it to a virus control tool and have its own set of principles to govern, is that kind of correct what we're trying to shift mm-hmm. it to, to, totally. to maintain standards, right? We're not trying to shaft standards on this. Right, right. Yeah. So I, I love that distinction and, and really movement to that because it would be so effective it's not as it's not as sensitive as clear clear the PCR. And I, so this is an a, I think allegedly an antigen test at home kit. Stephen, what's the difference between this and the new, I don't know if it's new or if it's just I, all I know is the University of Colorado I'm having students take two tests all the time. So this is my first awareness. They're taking the PCR test, which is kind of the common vocabulary for the past number of months. And I guess for me, they're also taking the antigen test at the same time. And they're getting that back faster, then it's usually days later before they get the PCR test. Is this the same antigen test, but maybe slightly modified as the at-home kit? And what's there between these two? And why would we take both of them if they're both effective?
1: Yeah. So I, t- to my understanding, the antigen test that, that's being administered to people in the clinic, along with the PCR test, is similar, not quite identical to the one that, that has been talked about for these like, rapid at-home tests. I do think that the, these clinical antigen tests still require some like special chemicals, some special reagents mm-hmm. to show the, the findings. So that makes it less, you can't quite map it to, to the home setting quite as easily. Mm-hmm. But the good thing is is they are rapid. They're similarly rapid. Like you said, they can turn around results within 15 minutes. The, the, the reagents that they require are, are sort of less expensive and so... So you can get these turnarounds a lot more quickly and really important you can scale them up massively. And the, the company that's producing them right now, so they would be able to produce millions. I think it was like it, it, tens of thousands, at least, if not millions each month. Right. So that's that's yeah. like that's yeah. great. So that's going to expand yeah. testing capacity hugely, improve testing turnarounds. Now, the reason they're administering both is because, again, the antigen tests aren't quite as sensitive. and and I don't remember about the specificity either. So with sensitivity and specificity, again, being controlling the rates of false negatives and false positives, the, the PCR test is really the gold standard. But it takes longer to run, again, because in many places you have to ship it off somewhere and get it back. So essentially by combining these two together, if you have an antigen test that comes back positive, there's a pretty good chance that you're infected. And so then you can immediately change your behavior and and make sure, you know, you can start the contact tracing that. And then the PCR is sort of used as a confirmation of that antigen test, because when you use two tests together, you you hugely improve the sensitivity and specificity from what you would have if you just used one in isolation. So essentially, they're using these two tests together to generate this like super test that, that's, that has a very high sensitivity and very high specificity. And so so I think that's helpful. And then the antigen test basically gives you the added benefit of giving you your results that much quicker so that you can then sort of implement all of these other public health strategies, contact tracing and isolation more rapidly.
0: Now, I want to go back to something you mentioned, and I don't know if you were thinking about this way back when, but you were proposing one of the theories is, of course, most pandemics or at least the past couple, you know, started in a big city like New York and then eventually in the fall went to like rural areas, right? And you were just talking about there, there are some places like like Boston where you're an epicenter, like right? You you can get tested and get back results the same day. But it's like the compound effect, if it's true, and we're seeing this already, that the fall's is hitting and starting to hit rural communities, which clearly doesn't have the same kind of laboratories. We're complicating things. But were you guys already thinking about this? Like, oh, man, this is going to be difficult because it's going to hit rural. And then on top of that, we can't get tests back like as quickly. And it's going to take days or is... Would the at-home test be this great way to, to, to circumvent that or to, to help that? Or, you know, quickly, the antigen test, is that something that has to be done at a specific lab in Boston? Or is that more of a like can be offset to its local hospital?
1: Right. That's something that can be offset basically to okay. outpatient clinics. So that's that, right. exactly like that's the kind of thing that will help. I yeah. think a lot in these more rural, more, more remote outbreaks. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that's okay.
0: yep. hugely beneficial now hitting the fall. if it does it? OK, great. Okay, let's, let's talk about, we got a few more things, one more big one I want to talk about. This we mentioned last week, I want to go this deeper. So we talked about the Hong Kong reinfection. So I want to bring this back to you. There was a great article that my sister gave me about the four scenarios to develop immunity. And it was specifically set in the context of this reinfection of Hong Kong. Of like, and I don't know if you have the chance to read it, but this you know the, the immediate immunity that lasts forever, one that grows kind of over time, the more you're infected. And then down to the fourth one, which is basically, it's like amnesia. You'd have no clue that you were infected, and you get just as bad the second time, which is the least likely, and they said it's pretty much not on the table, but somewhere in the middle. So I want you to talk more about this, specifically in the context of there was another reinfection. Now, we're starting to see them more and more. They're coming up, and as you already mentioned, this was not a surprise in epidemiology. This is to be expected. This is not like some kind of blindsidedness. But the Hong Kong, I think, gave me and maybe other people a sense of uh, calm when you saw the first one was maybe worse, the second one was less worse. So the immunity has a response. The second one it's not nearly as bad. That's helpful. Then the Reno case shows up, which is just the opposite. It is not so bad the first time, a lot worse the second time. So now, as as me as a layperson is hanging out over here, I'm concerned about immunity and, and whether it's going to be blind or... How do I make sense of this all in light of what you see? And is this expected? And how can I have some consolation here that 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 immunity is even if you get reinfected, it's it's not going to be as bad as the first one?
1: Yeah. So I think there are a couple things to note here. And, and first of all, you know, these these reports that are coming out, like you said, they're they're not surprising with any infection, even the ones that we normally think of as permanently immunizing, like like measles, for example. There, there is still some very small probability that, that you can get reinfected. And that has to do with just the, this huge variation in the individual's immune response, and what particular parts of the virus your immune system is targeting, that sort of thing. So, yeah, so it's, it's interesting because I think that the, like the Hong Kong case, it's you know, really exploded like, in, in the media and people, you know, like this is saying, you where know, people are going to get reinfected. Scientifically speaking, it's, it's just sort of like, all right, so now, now we have that first, like, that first confirmed case, of uh, reinfection, it's confirming something that we knew was possible. We can get a little bit more information about the time frame and that sort of thing. Like you said, the fact that it was less severe is really, it's really good. Now, with respect to the the case that was reinfection, um, presumed reinfection that seems to have been more severe, you know, that's that's well within the realm of possibility too. Now, now my hope is that so I'm pretty certain certain that reinfection will be possible and could actually affect. You know, clearly, it's possible, but. The question is like, is it going to be a major source of of like, is it going to be an epidemiologically important thing? Mm -hmm. I think that's also possible. I do think that just based on what we know from the other coronaviruses, from other sort of respiratory viruses, it is likely that you can get reinfected, but that reinfection on the whole will probably be less severe than the original infection. And that's just based on what we know from the other infections. Mm -hmm. So you can imagine that as we're beginning to look more intently for these cases of reinfection, you're going to be much more likely to pick up a reinfection that's more severe than mm-hmm. one that's less severe. So, so in terms of our, our detection strategy, right? And so like yeah. if somebody like this person comes to hospital or because, because they have a severe infection and then it comes out that they've been infected before, you're more likely to detect those cases than the people who are getting reinfected and have no symptoms whatsoever, so, so that could be part of what's playing into this too. It's like, oh my gosh, this person's getting a more severe reinfection. Well, we sort of expect to see those more severe reinfections before we see the ones that don't actually cause any problems at all. And so that's also not necessarily a huge cause for alarm for me. Again, it's well within the realm of possibility that reinfection can be more severe, but I don't think that this necessarily means that it's like, you know, just going to be totally random and you're going to get reinfected and it's just going to be like the first time. Could be could be yeah. but i think that it's again based on what we know from other viruses and from other coronaviruses in particular i think that on the whole in bulk it's probably going to like your past exposure will probably help protect you to some extent in future future severity of infection yeah. so yeah and uh with with respect to that that article that was it your sister mentioned yeah. Um, yeah with the four different ways of developing immunity you know that, that's kind of outlining sort of four different paradigms that we think about with different infectious diseases, right? Where, where yeah. measles is sort of a canonical example of something that gives you permanent immunity. There are other things. So part of the reason we need booster shots, for example, why you have to get you know, three different shots against all sorts of different things when you're a kid is because that immunity can mount. And then as you sort of get repeated exposures, then that gives you that sort of long lasting permanent immunity as well. And that happens with natural infection as well. But we normally okay. see that with diseases that we get vaccines for because we've developed vaccines for these things because they were so bad, you know, because you didn't want to get them multiple times. And then, you know, immunity can also decline over time. And and that's sort of more like a flu like paradigm where we're going to have to get re and, and I think that that's probably a pretty likely scenario for coronaviruses too, because those circulate year after year after year. So, and then the last one, you know, we absolutely do have diseases, infectious diseases that really don't give you any, any clear immunity whatsoever. Uh, The, some sexually transmitted diseases are like that, especially. But from the evidence that I've seen, I mean, it's very clear that, that people do generally mount an immune response to the to coronavirus. So I think it's already clear that it's not in that
0: case. Okay. Uh, you know, it just reminded me of, I feel like we're doing March all over again. Is that okay? It's like we had the same discussion in March. We're like, oh, we have 100 cases. But what you're seeing are cases in the hospital, more than likely... Those are just the worst cases and it's probably more mild. And There's tons more cases that we we're not aware of at home. It's like, we're just having deja vu. It's like March all over again, but now we're just having the reinfection right. where you're just seeing maybe the more, the more intense cases and it, there could be reinfections all over the place. And it's yeah. even more mild. Right. They just don't even show up. Right. So just put that in perspective. Great. Let's end with two quick questions and then we'll sign off. We're about 42 minutes in. This comes from Molly. As she says, you know, we're busy doing stuff, but can someone with positive antibody test pick up and transmit the virus while they have the antibodies? So she has some friends who have been tested positive antibodies, and, and they're going about their normal pre-COVID thinking that they cannot spread it. So if they have that, should they still be concerned at all, or is there any kind of caveats to deal with this particular test?
1: Yeah, so I mean, you can still have antibodies at some level for something and get reinfected and infect other people. So I think it's possible, you know, the antibodies will help protect you. It'll probably reduce those probabilities. But again, so this is kind of going back to what, what I would do. And I think that even, even if I were to test positive for COVID and I found out that I had antibodies and you know I went through the illness and whatever, and I had antibodies afterward, I think I would s- still not really change my behavior. I think I'd still not see more than a couple people in any two week period. I would assume that I could be just as infectious as I was before, basically immediately upon the symptoms resolving. Now, that's maybe a little bit pessimistic. It's probably a little bit cautious, you know.
0: Yeah. Sure. But
1: nevertheless, we we don't know. And so and there's there there is absolutely there are infections that you can get reinfected with despite having mm. some level of antibodies too. Yeah. So so again, I mean clearly with, with these various cases of reinfection, antibodies do not imply immunity to reinfection, absolutely. nor does it mean you know, immunity to infectiousness. So I think I think that some caution is still absolutely warranted.
0: Great. And I think it's also good to precaution. Again, I'm not the expert Stephen is, but I read this, that there's still the outlying question of even if you are reinfected, whether you're actually transmissible is another question up for grabs. We just don't quite know. Yeah. So just want to put that out. We have no clue. Last question. This actually came from my wife. I think it's a great question because we talk about the upcoming fall, what's going to look like. That's already been part of our, 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 our talk, our discussion. We end with this like, what do you think next spring might look like, Stephen? I know this is really complicated. Now we're, 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 we're prophesying six, seven months in the next summer. So I know I'm putting you on the spot and the chances of being wrong are highly likely. But in the current context of what you see, and I know there could be a vaccine, what what are some scenarios, a couple that could outplay that you see are the most predictable for summer and spring next spring?
1: So I think that yeah, like you said, it's it's hard to predict. But but this is this is actually exactly the sort of question that we were asking back in April too. And that some of the modeling work we yeah. did was was oriented towards trying to understand. So so based on some of that work, and again on what we know from historical pandemic respiratory viruses like pandemic flu, and this sort of thing, people are probably going to. I mean, they're absolutely going to continue getting COVID through the winter. I think that it's likely that transmission will accelerate. In the winter as people are crowding more indoors and as, as potentially the, the sort of the, the climate factors make it more likely for transmission to happen. But then we come into the spring. So at that point, you know, ideally, there will be a lot more people with antibodies in the population. Weather begins to shift again. And so I think that it's, it's likely that it will be easier to control in the spring and over next summer than it was this spring and this summer. I think that it depends, it really depends a lot on how bad the, the fall and winter are to know how bad the spring and summer are going to be. And there's sort of, yeah. I think, an inverse relationship there, probably, to some extent. Okay. You know, if we do a really good job of uh, reducing transmission over the winter, then, then there will still be things to contend with in the spring and summer, for sure. And, and that, that does not mean that we should just let things run rampant in the winter. Because that,
0: you know, <laughs> yeah, like, I, I want to
1: be very clear about that. But that is not the route that we want to go because again, like again, the big issue is overwhelming hospitals. We're going to have co-circulation with flu. So that's going to also put a strain on hospitals. So these are the reasons why we need to be very careful and cautious over the winter. Mm -hmm. So I think that most optimistic scenario is that we have a vaccine by springtime. And so, again, that will help. That won't sort of immediately switch off the pandemic, though. It'll take a while for that vaccine to get to people and there are a lot of people who won't get the vaccine, you know, mm-hmm. so we're, we're going to be living with COVID for a while. And I yeah. think it's going to be part of our lives for, you know, easily through the next spring and summer as well. But hopefully we'll be less of a central part of our lives at that point. You know, it'll be yeah. something that we're living with, but I think mm-hmm. that we'll have a lot more. Hopefully we'll have better treatments. Hopefully we'll have some sort of vaccine that's protective. More people will ideally be immune. Our testing will be ramped up We'll have more contact tracing. You know, all of these things will be yeah. acting in our favor it will make it sort of less, you know, when I talk to my, like, when I talk to people, like we're, I wonder what we talked about before COVID did, you know, like that's all we talked about, right? Like, <laughs> what know. the heck, you know and, I, I know? and so I think that's, that's what I'm hoping for is that it will become less of a central part of our lives, yeah. um, even though it will still, it'll still absolutely be here.
0: Yeah. Here's hoping for that. And we do our part wearing masks. There was one article in here that we didn't talk about. I loved it. I put it in the show notes. It's about the masks, this idea of Tokyo looking at them in Japan of course, wearing masks, but also the idea of more silence. In this basically is called "shut up." And just like when you're in when you're in public, especially like the idea of a subway, just don't talk. Wear your mask. Don't talk. Whisper. Use a little voice. You know, one person made a kind of a tongue-in-cheek remark if we just didn't talk for a couple months, we'd probably be over this, or you know, through through, or at least you would be a lot better <laughs> positioned. So I'll put that in the show notes as well. So the the motto we're not going by Stephen is. COVID parties now, so we can have pool parties in the summer. That's not what we're trying nope, to say. Nope, <laughs> we're, nope, nope. So, so th- even though that's the temptation, we're not going to do that. Let's keep it at bay. Let's do our part. All right. Thanks so much, Steven. Let's end with that. Um, if you want to, of course, support us, please leave a review. Do that. There's uh, a link in the show notes, so check it out. Please support us as well. We have $450 left to pay off. You can do that in the show notes as well. Venmo, PayPal, check out my podcast dropped last week in Living the Real And if you want to get in in touch with Stephen, S-T-E-P-H-E-N-K-S-S-L-E-R on Twitter. Or please, please leave comments. Let us know what's going on. Matt at livingthereal.com. We share them with Mark and Stephen. All that good stuff. And thank you so, so much. And we will see you next week. Take care. Bye-bye.